0: Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're gonna, uh, I'm gonna, I switched up things on you guys today. Um, it's going to be like a two-week study in this. Um, uh, I'm going to cover the text today, and uh, KJ is going to come back. He's going to cover more different ways and apologetics and concerning this text next week. And so, uh, so We're going to do Acts in the morning uh, for the next two weeks. Then we'll uh, do Genesis in the evening. Then we'll switch back, uh, probably right after that. So, uh, if you have a copy of God's word, uh, let's join with me in Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 17 and we're going to deal with verse 16 to verses 34. Again, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16, we're going to work our way down to verse 34. And the scripture says, starting in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provide, provide, provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some Epicureans, some Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some Said, What does this babbler wish wish to say? Others said, he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are uh, presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, assurance of, to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were the Dionysius, the Areopagate, Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius. And others with them. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we walk through these verses here this morning. Our Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us back again um, to be together as your people. Lord, we ask you, Lord, to encourage us in your Word, to build us up, Lord, and teach us proper um, evangelism—a proper um, way to go out, Lord, to share your good news. Um, But also, Lord, let us also be humble, Lord, to know that, Lord. that apart from you, Lord, we were blinded as well. Um, the Lord, we were in our sin, dead in our sins. But, Lord, you brought us to life. So, Lord, I pray that, Lord, for us as we walk through these verses, that we are humble and the, humbly as we navigate and look through these verses, Lord, that we see that God is good and that God has saved us, a people that are so undeserving. He saved us. And he gave us eternal life. And God can do the same, Lord, even for unbelievers in this world. So, Lord, we ask you, Lord, to just bless that this uh, this morning. Uh, let me preach your word faithfully. Uh, let me be careful in your text, and um, let this be a time, Lord, that um, for all of us, Lord, to see uh, how the way how we can navigate in a way of how we share the gospel uh, in different ways, and as we encounter different people here in our society, Lord. So help us, Lord, with these things today in Christ. Let me pray. Amen. One guy, Tony Marita, he said, how should we as Christians interact with a pluralistic society? How should we engage skeptical intellectuals in particular? To find answers from Paul's visit, let's look at what Paul saw, what Paul felt, where Paul went, and consider what Paul said to the Areopagus. We'll find that each point is related Stott, in fact, put it, well, talking about John Stott, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. This is because we do not see like Paul. What is Stott getting at with this? Stott is getting at the the uh, the tension that Paul felt when he went to Athens. That he felt the lostness there. He was eager to be able to see, uh, to see the brokenness. And he was eager to see... The need of help in this community. So what he do? The first thing we're gonna find out he do. He called for the brothers that he gotta come here quickly, come here quickly to be able to see that the need of the gospel here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as for us as believers, do we see that in our society? Do we see the urgency? Do we see the brokenness? Do we see the things that Paul saw? But not only see it, do we feel it? Amen. Do we feel the deepness? Of our hurt and even in our own community, Paul didn't just go out and just spout out things. Paul felt it first. He felt he didn't see that this is just good to do. Paul saw the need in this, but also um, Paul, um, Paul just didn't just share Jesus either here. Um, If you notice, even in this message, this is unique. This is different from the message from Lystra in the synagogue. Um, This is different from the message in Thessalonians in the synagogue. This message today is going to be before those that are not in the synagogue. And Paul doesn't start off with the good news in this message. Matter of fact, Jesus' name is not even in this message. It's going to allude to him by saying he, which is Jesus, at the end of the message. But Paul doesn't start off giving them Jesus. Um, Paul starts off giving them bad news. Hmm. And um, so, as we work through this, um, we're going to see the first point we're going to see how Paul is provoked seeing Athens full of idols. And the second thing we're going to see, Paul proclaimed bad news at the Areopagus. And the last thing we're going to see, some not afraid of other bad news, but some is going to believe in Jesus. So, let's start off with point number one Paul is provoked seeing Athens full of idols paul we see in already in verse um, verse 16 verse, i mean yeah verse 16 paul the first thing we see that he does here um he is provoked when he is when he's seeing a city that's full of idols and um uh, for him he um we saw in verse 15 is that paul is um uh, still paul is carried away to athens um we're gonna find out that that Timothy and Silas are in Berea, and they are ministering the gospel in Berea, encouraging the church in Berea, because the Berea is the church of people that are eager to learn God's word, so they stay there. But Paul, with knowing that the people are persecuting Paul, or uh, the people that didn't like Paul, Paul has to leave. So he leave um, he leave the uh, uh, the Bereans, he leave there, and he goes to. Athens and that show you the humility of Paul Paul knew that it was going to be distracted That if he stayed there they're gonna continue trying to stone him and try to kill him so what did Paul do Paul said hey let let me allow these brothers to stay here and let me leave so the gospel can go forward in this work so Paul leaves and he goes over to Athens Athens is a, a place with a lot of history there in Athens 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 has a lot of history um, a place that we know of um, The reigning place of, uh, of Macedonia It's like the most popular place of this, uh, of this area of Greece It's Athens If you ever look up Athens on one of the actual Google Maps Or you look at pictures, the images You can see some major pictures of some pillars types of Colosseums You can see roads built, ancient roads built Athens was known by many great things throughout history So Paul goes there And as he get there, he see the brokenness is there, in there. He see so many idols that are all before him. And it tells us that when Paul, seeing all these things before him, Paul is broken by seeing the idols. He's seeing a community now that is not even thinking about Jesus. A community that is only thinking about self. So what did Paul do is uh, here, Paul cries out, he crawls out in a different way. You guys remember when Paul and Barnabas was in Lystria and they actually called Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, another type of, of place that wasn't known as to having a synagogue in this particular place in Lystria And so what did they do to Paul is that they tried to deify Paul and also Barnabas. And Paul kind of tore his garment like, no, we're not God. We're not any any types of gods. And Paul was trying to convince them and share with them that, no, we're not. And Paul tried to articulate the gospel to them. I think this was different. You had nothing but idols all around this place. And Paul was so upset here by seeing these idols. Paul was provoked in the spirit. The word "provoked" is the word that we know as to be upset, to be angered, to be irritated, to be distressed. Paul was raging internally of the boastful idolatry in Athens. Then it said, "Paul, sit back and he said he so he went into the synagogue. See, he reasoned with them." <clears throat> The reason is actually deals with arguing dispute. There's no way you can have a synagogue here. You know, you got a synagogue and you got to tolerate this stuff. What kind of Jewish people are you? You're tolerating this. So you reason with them, asking them a question, like arguing with them, disputing with them. How can you be true followers of Yahweh and you're tolerating the idols being before you? So what did Paul do as he argued and disputed before, before the synagogue? He goes before devout persons and also in the marketplace now. Example of the, the people that's in the marketplace are the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were, one person says, adhering to a branch of philosophy. Philosophy is two words, uh, phila, it gives us a word, uh, the love. Sophie is wisdom. So philosophy is the study of uh, love of wisdom. So these people right here, the Epicureans, were lovers of wisdom. It was founded by a guy named Epicurus in 341 to 270 BC. So, um, Epicurus they carried very little for talk of gods, is often viewed as hedonism, which means seeing pleasure as the highest good. So they would see as pleasure, um, enjoyment. It's the, it's the total purpose of life. It's what you feel your way to and what you actually experience. It's kind of the, the total purpose of life. The stores don't know that, uh, on the other spectrum of this a the present philosophy founded by Zeno, 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 340 to 265 BC marked by self-control and conduct and not being given over to one passion. So this can be the opposite side of it. This is one one that's not following out the passions. This reminds me like, kind of a Buddhism. Buddhism is a time for getting to the point of like this numbness, that you're emotionless. That you can get to the place that nothing bothers you, that your emotion you is not going up and down, that you're actually just sit, sitting right there kind of motionless. Kind of emptying oneself from passions. So these were two different types of groups that Paul kind of stood before in the marketplace and actually engaging them on their belief system. And some groups, like the Epicureans and the Stoic, called Paul a babbler. A person with a lot of empty words. In verse 32 lets us know that, that a babbler word, word was considered like a foolish words to the Greeks. That what is he saying and everything is type of irrelevant. But we don't know what he's talking about. Matter of fact, we see it in the text. that others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they didn't have a clue who Jesus was. They didn't have a clue about the resurrection. They thought Jesus and the resurrection were married to each other. They thought Jesus was a deity and the resurrection was a deity. So they two were, I think, resurrection like Anastasia, Anastasius. They think that Jesus and the resurrection was kind of have a relationship with each other. So they were clueless about the Christian faith. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know what the resurrection was. They were clueless. So when Paul was telling them about Jesus and the resurrection, talking to the synagogue about it, they were clueless. And what Paul was doing is that Paul wanted the believers. He wanted to see who the believers were. But when Paul finds out that these people are lost, Paul switches the game up. And what did the Greeks do? These Greeks wanted to see how different the religion derived from other beliefs. So they will sit back and talk about, for example, Aristotle, if it's Socrates. They would try to engage. Like, is this another branch of Socrates? Or this is this another branch of Aristotle or the Stoics? Like, where did this belief system come from? So they will sit around all day and try to navigate and think about the history and the purpose of these different belief systems. And the place they would do it is a place called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. Areopagus means the hill of the Aries. You guys might have the Zodiac symbols, the word Aries. I think Aries and Mars, Aries is a a form. You got all the different Roman Greek, all the different types of gods from different civilizations. They're kind of like the same gods, but different names. So, when they ask you, say, a commander take over a civilization, they come in and take their gods and they put their new names on those different gods. So the different Egyptian gods, you had the different Roman gods, the, 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 uh, the gods that was like in German, ancient Germany type gods, all these different gods, like Thor, all these different gods would kind of be the same gods with different names. So Aries, when people say Zodiacs, so me and Rianna, I think Greg talked about it one day, a lot of the zodiac symbols points back to another name for one of the different gods. They relate to each god. Each zodiac relates to each type of god. And and I'm not surprised, I would even say even go towards to the Chinese New Year's. They have the different type of you have the the, 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 the rabbit, I think you have the monkey. Every year represents a certain things. Each character is one. So all civilization have these type of symbols that they kinda people kinda worship or revert back to well this place actually in in, uh, in Athens uh, was a place called Mars here at Areopagus it was a hill, hill of Ares. Ares was a god of war in the Greek mythology who was called Mars in Latin, in Roman he would be called Mars and it's the same thing we talked about again in Lystra I think we talked about Paul and, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas they used the name of, I think they said um, Zeus and Hermes. Well, and the Roman gods they would be considered Jupiter and Mercury. You see, same same type of pagan gods with different names. Well, this place right here, the Iriods, the Areopagus, they would sit back and they would actually talk about these different gods. They would have a place they were talking about the civil. So, how does your religion relate to our civil laws? Or how does our civil laws relate to your belief system? So they have a religious council talking about, huh, tell me something more about your belief system. Tell me about your belief system. So they would just sit there and engage one another with different belief systems. Now it's the first time they hear the news of this belief system of Jesus and the resurrection. How does Paul start off in Are- Areopagus with these people? Point number two, Paul proclaimed the bad news in Areopagus. After Paul is disturbed by what is happening in Athens, he stands in the midst of this Areopagus. One person says, this, this speech serves as an example of how Paul evangelized Gentile who had virtually no background in scriptures. Another example is the speech Paul gives in Lystra that I mentioned. In both cases, Paul starts out with creation and move forward in the redemptive story. He also confronts idolatry in both cases. So Paul in his message doesn't start with Jesus in front of the Areopagus. He doesn't start off with Jesus. Once he figured out, as he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection and the synagogue and other places, now he figured out that now he moves over to the marketplace, moves to Areopagus, and these people are clueless. So Paul now... Change the script up now. Now he goes in. Now he doesn't start start sharing them all the good news. Before those that doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know in the sense that they're sinners, he doesn't start off with good news. And again, for us, family, that's not faithfully sharing the gospel. If someone doesn't know that they are a sinner, they they don't know the bad news, why would they even want Jesus? So, what do you do? He's missional here. He understands his context. These people don't know Jesus. They don't know anything about the resurrection. So, what did Paul do here? He starts off first to let them know who they are before a holy, righteous God. So, what do he do? He starts off with God first. He gives a full gospel here. I mean, when I say of, uh, he gives the full aspect of who God is and the bad news. But later, at the end, he would mention about salvation as in Jesus. He don't say salvation, but he said judgment is going to come. But we're going to know that this is going to be good news. But first, he's sit right here for a while dealing with the bad news. So Paul and his message is grounding these unbelievers in the bad news. So Paul first engaged them by defining God. He does it by looking around at the altars. Yeah, these different altars. Uh, Within well Alina and I, we went to um, Caesarea Philippi, uh, one of the pagan gods, Pan. Um, a lot of times, if you're a pagan god, they would actually put that pagan god into some type of um, um, cave or to build a cave around it. Um, you can see the similar concept with Roman Catholicism. A lot of times you see Mary as a statue, and you see her kind of inside like a little cave and around her. And so some of the similarities was taken from ancient paganism. So within paganism, they would have some type of cave and a deity would kind of be coming out of the cave or be kind of associated with a cave. And so, and they would have an altar before them. So here in Athens, at the Areopagus, they would have these different altars. And it was just so diverse. It was a pluralistic society. You have your God here, the Stoics, what they believe. You have what the Epi- Epicureans believe. And other people, they have their different altars. They can go there. And so all of these people have their altar. They can go there and honor that particular altar at that particular time. As they still will be able to, to uh, engage one another with their different belief systems. So as Paul was seeing all these altars around, some might even be in Jupiter. Um, some might have been Saturn Mercury's uh, so all these different altars Paul looks around and look at all of them and he noticed that there's one altar here as he looked around huh one of them says unknown God and Paul this this and said this is the unknown God right here on this one so this altar right here would be for anyone that probably will be there in that area that that didn't have a particular God at that particular time and they would say they don't know God they know there's a God out there they don't really know what it is there would be an altar for them so anybody can kind of go to that altar and actually say and try to take the altar and say that altar represent their God so it could have been a type of God from a different African religion but what Paul do here Paul takes advantage of it Paul takes advantage of this unknown God at altar. He points this unknown God God to be the God of creation. So what did Paul do? He starts spitting straight bars now from here. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what did Paul do? Paul starts off with first by just comparing. God who made the world and everything in it. All of y'all gods are known for something like water and fire and sky, Paul would say to them. This unknown God, he made that. All the gods you're worshiping here in, 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 in Athens, water, the sky, war, all these things that you're mentioning, the God of creation made all, made all of it. One person says this, Paul said the God who created the world sustains the world. If Jesus weren't holding the world together, everything would fall apart. This idea, too, stood in contrast to the beliefs of the Epicureans and the Stoics. God is distinct, distinct from creation, yet is intimately involved in it, sustaining it moment by moment. So Paul starts out with first is that God had made it all. The statues you made for your water God, guess what God made water? The statue you made for fire, guess what God made fire? Everything your statue consists of that you're worshiping, God has made it all. And also being the Lord of the heavens and earth. All y'all gods have lived in temple made by man. Y'all God was caught out and needing a dwelling place. But the God of heaven and earth can't be limited to a cave. He can't be limited to just right here. He created all things. He's made it all. And God in heaven doesn't need anything from anything of his creation. But y'all, y'all are going to the altar, to the water. Y'all are going to the altar for these things. Y'all are going every single day to these things and praying to them. But all the things you're praying to can't exist outside from God. God in heaven and earth gives to all mankind life and breath, everything. So why would he need something from Ares and Zeus or Hermes? So this unknown God doesn't need anything from Zeus. It doesn't need anything from Hermes. He doesn't need anything from any other pagan God. So what Paul is doing is that Paul is comparing. He's reasoning with them. He's engaging them. He's not talking about in the sense of you know, right now talking about racism right here. I mean, this is a totally different issue. Paul is engaging them for who they are. He treating like human. He dealing with the issue before him. Racism is not an issue for him right here. So Paul is teaching us in evangelism is that we engage people where they at. Amen. A lot of times we have conversation with people when we're sharing the gospel. It doesn't have anything to do where they at. We should meet them where they at with the gospel. How the gospel breaks down any barriers, any belief system any thought process the gospel breaks it down so after Paul makes this comparison goes even farther about how God made all mankind all mankind purpose to, to know God the God that made the heavens and the earth Paul explains how he allotted them territories and periods of time the, the time for to, to show his general revelation to them. And it had never been far from any of us. He had revealed himself through people, through the sun, through the moon, through the sky, through the trees. All of these things God has shown that He is a God. That's why we're learning in, uh, Romans 2 that there's no excuse that you can see within creation that God, somebody made it all. But also you can see the, limited, the limited, limitations of everything. Just recently with the ice storm, you heard trees fell down. So somebody worshipping a tree. Tree has their limited. If, if a tree is a god and someone's a god, why does a storm not knock it down? He goes on through. You can name anything. Everything in this earth has its limits. But God doesn't. And Paul is letting them see is that everything that I've created but pointed to God's general revelation, but now you have turned and worshiped these things. Then Paul even compared the sayings of some people that worship the false gods. He goes on to say, For him we live and move and exist. One person says this Paul may be quoting the poet uh, Epimenides of, of Crete he may simply be using a common statement in Greek thought. Then he goes on to say, we also are his offspring. This is a quotation from one of the ancient poet philosophers, probably the Stoic poet Ariatus. And what did Paul do here? Paul navigates and uses the same language. Paul turns around and gives him a purpose for many of them being the offsprings of God. Paul builds uh, on the previous statement, the fact that people are God's offspring show that the living God is a grandeur than idols. That if you are God's offspring, don't you should have a bigger purpose than worshiping trees and statues? If you're God's offspring, don't God have something better than trees and statues that you can worship? Yes, God has himself if we are his offspring, that we must know for certain that God is not made by hands of man out of gold or silver or stone or by any type of imagination. No, he is the true God of the universe. And now you have heard about him, that the God of the universe has created everything. And the offspring that your poet quotes, if you are a true offspring, then you're not made by all of these statues made by hands. You must be made by somebody that is greater than all of these things. You have to be created by God Himself. Paul comes down and said, "Time of ignorance. God gave, you know, it's over. God gave grace and overlooked, but now He commands everyone to repent." So Paul in this message used the carrots of God. To let the people know that God's judgment is on them. That God's been revealing himself throughout all creation and you have suppressed the truth. You suppressed the truth. <laughs> Justin Taylor says this. Paul's speech to the Epiopagus is bad news. It doesn't talk about God's love or grace. It talks about judgment. Then when he does talk about the resurrection, It's to point to the coming judgment. It doesn't mention the cross. Neither does it mention the name Jesus. Only he at the very very end. Actually, Paul's speech is not expounding the gospel. Rather, it is commending the gospel. Drawing attention to its its, uh, ultimacy of urgency. The point is this. You would not understand the good news of Jesus and his resurrection unless there is a context to it. This is what Paul provides to the Athenians. They won't turn to Jesus if they don't see a need of Jesus. By them going to their statues, they don't think they're bad people. I'm not too bad going to the statues or going to their different idols. I'm not too bad going to the idols every single day. Come going to the idols and ask the idol for rain. I'm asking the idol for things. That's what they're going to the to the idols for, it, for them to get what they want to get from their idol. Hmm. It's like a genie. It's like I want to go to the actual altar to be able to ask for certain things. The Epicureans would ask in the sense of, can I have passions? Let me have the most passions that I can have. The stores would do the opposite. For them, they would go to the actual idols for them to be able to see how can I kind of empty myself from everything. You notice their belief system doesn't deal with sin. Hmm. Their belief system doesn't deal with sin. All these belief systems deal with the more good you get, you get what you want. The more good you get, you get this. Hmm. In the same way with Islam today. If you follow all the five pillars of Islam, you get the certain amount of virgins. You get all these blessings the men get. I I don't know what the women get. But the men get all these things. So all these things deals with that. As long as you follow all these things, you get this. Even though it talks about Buddhism, it's not only thing about, they do like this, this this getting to the point of not being jealous, not, not, not being hateful. You get to the point of not doing those things, but it still doesn't deal with sin. And we can talk all day about every belief system in the world, belief system in the world. And all the belief system is mostly is mankind is getting themselves to a certain place that they can be satisfied themselves. Paul is getting something different. Paul lets them know the creator. He let know that God created everything. And by creating everything that he deserved all the worship. And since you haven't worshiped him You must repent because now you have put another God before me. You must repent. And if you don't repent, you will be judged. And it is a resurrection come that you will be judged forevermore. So Paul lets them know that you will be judged if you don't turn to this God of creation. There is no excuse. The creation is yelling out. There is a God. There is no excuse. So yes, that question even in our own community. Why is so much happening right here? People say, well, they don't know God. I don't think that's true. I think they know there is a God, but they suppress it. I think we all know that there is a God, but we should try to suppress it because we don't want to submit to that God at times. So there's enough evidence in the world for us to see that there is a God, but they don't want it. They don't want God because they want to rule over God. They want to be in the seat of God. They want to be able to live a life that catered to the flesh. So for them, you go in and give a, me and Rod talked about this, you go in and give a gospel, just so much good news. You come to Jesus, you get a new car. You come to Jesus, you get a new house. You come to Jesus, you live forever. You come to Jesus, you get all these certain things. What were they going to say? I want that Jesus. You tell me I can go shoot somebody, I can go hurt somebody, and I can still get a car? I can cuss somebody out and still get this? I can do all this and get this? Man, I want that Jesus. I can live my best life and still get what Jesus is going to give me. And I think that's the Jesus that so many people in our community are worshiping. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's, it's a Jesus that they're made up of their own imagination. It's a Jesus that's pretty much giving me all the desires of the flesh and I can live how I want to live. That's a Jesus of the imagination. That's not a biblical Jesus. But the biblical Jesus right here we see in the scripture is calling us to repent, to walk in him. So what did Paul do here? Paul tells him to repent. But you can't have all these other idols and have Jesus too. You either pick one hate the other so Paul proclaims this bad news upon the Areopagus so how is they going to respond to this point number three some not afraid of the bad news but some believe in Jesus now when they heard the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this So Paul went out from the mist, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with him. Some mocked what Paul was saying about the resurrection of the dead. When it's mocking, it's this taunting. This taunting like, you know, who cares about your judgment? Who cares about this resurrection of the dead? And it was pretty much letting them know that all of this stuff you're saying is pretty much babble. and Christian family be encouraged. This might have been about almost 2,000 years ago. but as a Christian, you're always going to have somebody that's babble call you a babbler. You're always going to have somebody that it might be close to you. That might not be close to you. They're going to be hostile towards the gospel. Let that not discourage you. If you see the trend within Paul, Paul has been experiencing this the last, I mean, the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey. A part of evangelism with Paul is that he's going to be rejected. So, family, don't be discouraged. When people mock you, where was your God that when this happened? But my loved one died. What was your God at with this? When people try to mock our God and try to reject our God, a lot of time we try, a lot of time we get discouraged. But we say this right here. Paul know how you felt. Paul know what it means to feel to proclaim the bad news, to claim this news right in front of him, and they reject it. So for those in this room that are laboring amongst family, Paul knows exactly what you went through, what you've been going through. And ultimately Jesus knows because Jesus was rejected by his own people in Nazareth. So family rejection is always going to be part of this plan. But I say this right here. We don't give people a half gospel because we're afraid that they're going to reject it. We give them the full gospel. We let them know the bad news. Then we eventually pointed to the good news. We know it pointed to the good news because we're gonna find out here shortly that somebody's gonna believe. Who they're gonna believe in, they're gonna believe in Jesus. But apart from Christ, we're all a loss. And these people right here before Paul that are rejected the gospel, they are lost. The fault, man, the fault posture is rebellion. So Paul pushes through. Every time he's persecuted, he pushes through it. Look what happened. The Lord saved some from him. Again, that should remind us, no matter how easy we want evangelism to be and results to be, many would not believe and would try to discourage you in your faith. But there, there will be taunting. There will be jealousy. But one thing about it, family, as some people taunt us, Some people be jealous towards us as we preach the gospel. The Lord is going to save some. He will save some. The Lord will do it. Because we see here, many in Athens thought this bad news that Paul gave was just foolish. But it actually was a source of life. Because some wanted to hear more about what Paul's words were. The Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius are two are example that responded to the gospel. So family, I think it's an encouraging story how Luke ends us with this. He let us know how all that, all that you know, the rhetoric Paul was going through. Man, people got saved. People responded to the gospel and saved. These Greeks heard and believe, but it's only a few. That doesn't mean it was a failure. If only one person in your family gets saved, that doesn't mean it's a failure. One person at your job gets saved, that doesn't mean it's a failure. It being that God has to save who is intended to save. When we base success or the gospel about how many people get saved, we then put God as a statistical mathematician who is all about numbers. And if God is all about numbers, God will save the whole world. Yeah. If God is all about statistics, every single person that was uh, that of that, uh, mankind will be saved and go to heaven. Everybody on earth. If, uh, if it was all about numbers. It's not about a statistical mathematical formula that God is worrying about. And sometimes, fam, we have bought into that. We have bought into this as that we have to save so many different people, then it'll be a successful work. Family, if you got one person you love loving on and working on and sharing the gospel with for the next five years, and they come to Christ, family, that work in five years is not in vain. That's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. So don't let anybody or anything try to buy you into a, some type of a scheme that God's going to be honored more as, you, as more gets saved over the amount of time one soul and 30 souls is just as important to God. And I'm not saying in any way that to stay with one person, should have gone with every gospel to everybody. But if no one within that 50 or 60 gets saved, but one family, hallelujah, you know? Praise the Lord. Be I mean, just seeing that the Lord still saves. Because think about many of you guys. Think about many of y'all. I mean, a lot of us have family. promise example, Lena. Lena being saved and the rest of our family, nobody else in our family is saved. I mean, one person in the whole family is saved. That is good news that God saves people. But a lot of times we like, no, God, that's, that's what you're doing and everything. Well, that's, that's, that's not enough. It's that we got to do this right here and then God is going to be happy. If God's going to do this, and God is going to be happy. That's not the God we see here. God is happy, and God is joyful as we be faithful and minister the gospel and be faithful in that witness. As many of you guys are going out to people in apartments, as you minister the gospel, maybe you stick with that one family for a while. And just loving that family and loving that family. Inviting that family to your house and loving on them and getting and just ingraining the gospel into that family. That's not unfaithfulness. But also you might want to go knock on about 50 doors and share the gospel. That's faithfulness too. Both of them are faithfulness. But don't buy into the statistics and things of that that you have to have so many people. You got to do these certain things. God's gonna save who we intended to save, and we're just part of this plan of God. We don't know who they are, so we share the gospel with everybody, and we, we get an opportunity to. But God is gonna save them, and the results is actually that's a higher pay grade than us. That's God. God is the one that deals with who gets saved. We share the gospel with everybody. That's some belong to God. We're not God. Our Father cares about all those who are set aside by the Father before the foundation of the world. So the salvation of Demarius and Dionysius was a success. It was encouraging that Paul proclaimed the good, the, the, this, this bad news. Then, then they heard some good news here, and they were saved. Family, this is how the Lord works today. He's the one that saves. The people that you're praying for are in the hands of the Lord. I would say, continue pleading for them. Continue crying out for them. But ultimately, it's the Lord the one that saves. But who is the Lord going to save? He's going to say all the ones that he set out before the foundation of the world. And I don't know who they are. So we still cry out. We still cry out. We cry out. And a lot of us want to kind of put it all together and try to understand all this and try to put it all together. So why are we crying out? And why are we doing these certain things? Uh, the the Lord causes and commands to cry out to him to pray so we still cry out and pray to the Lord but he's the one that still saves I think what happened is that the Lord loved to see our dependence on him the Lord loved to see our dependence on him for us to know that he is the one that truly saves so we boast in the Lord let's end with a couple of applications fam are you provoked by seeing the idolatry around you are you provoked As a believer, we decide to see the world conform to Jesus. So ask yourself, if you're enjoying people around you that are steady dishonoring the Lord, are you enjoying idolatry with them? As believers, we must always stand for truth. You don't have to be prideful, but you can let those around you See the God that you serve by how you live your life around them. A lot of times, Christians, we, work, we mess up our witness because what happens is that we be around so many people that are living a life that are honoring to the Lord, and we start taking habits from them. As Christians, we are to be other world, but not conforming to the world. We are to give people Jesus. We are to live a life for people to ask us questions. But if we're looking at the world, why would they come to us and ask us questions? Amen. One thing that's so profound I always notice, it's like doing funerals or weddings or things of like that, or big events that might be happening, a lot of times people that need prayer, that need God is in it, a lot of time, they come to those Christians that, that have lived a life that's honoring. All the people that laugh with them and live their crazy life like them, A lot of time, they don't go to them. They go to those that they can't really, they can really trust in those particular moments. So family, have you built that character around them? They see that you stand for the Lord. You stand for Jesus in the midst of them. Some might say, well, you look, you stuck up. Some might say, well, you acting all funny, like you better than everybody. Some might say those certain things. But family, we don't let that determine you know, the way uh, we carry ourselves. We carry ourselves in a way that's hunt into the Lord because God has called us to. And so um, we don't just try to fit in with people. We don't lower God's standard. We let God's standard stays here. And as we live out the Christian life among the world, um, we can be around them, but we don't lower that standard and things of like that for us to be able to be friends with that world. Number two. Are you ashamed to share the gospel in the popular places in our day? Paul proclaimed it at the Areopagus. Do you pick and choose where you share the gospel? Are you ashamed to share the gospel at work? Are you ashamed to share the gospel with friends and family or at school? We must not be ashamed. We must be ready to share the gospel anywhere and everywhere. But also we must be ready to listen. Listen, I always ask questions. Where are you from? Tell me about your background. And they don't have any clue about Jesus. They don't have any clue about it. Then you know where to start at. So as you listen first, then you navigate, then you engage them, you engage their belief system. Paul didn't just, you know, was monolithic. Let me just share this same story every time I see this one person. Let me share this story as I see this one person. Let me say the same story with them. Paul met every individual differently, because every individual, or every say individual, every group had different experiences. So Paul he engaged them because they had different gods. So he engaged them. Okay, well you talk about your god. Let me talk about the god of creation. In the same way, when somebody might talk about things in our day. They might say, you know, you might, the, the one the the the, uh, the thing that said now like the black woman is god. She's a goddess. And so in our day, we would kind of engage that. What makes her a goddess? Is she the creator of the universe? Because she do this in the universe? Or is she, her having, a, a woman can have kids that make her a goddess? Well, who made the woman? So you can able to, to engage every person differently where they're at. So what does it do? It causes us not to be lazy. It causes us to have good conversations. It causes us to be patient in our conversations that's what Paul is teaching us that we can be quick to listen right slow to speak that we engage them with the greatest news ever lastly do you do you share the gospel again without sharing the bad news if so I would say share the bad news let them see who they are before God that they have sinned before a holy righteous God then point them to the good news is this even though you sin, God sent his only son, Jesus. He lived a perfect, righteous life for those that believe in him. He has took their sins away from them and nailed it on the cross. And he has given them his righteousness. That whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Because God doesn't see their sins anymore. Because their sins were nailed to the cross, his cross. So we share the full gospel. We share the bad news, then we share the good. Family, let that be us as we navigate and as we meet people in our community and work in other places. Let me stop there, and next week, KJ is going to come up, and he's going to teach the same test, and he's going to deal with mostly different types of ways of apologetics next week. Let me pray for us.